0: Three weeks ago, we celebrated the day of Pentecost when God poured his spirit out on all the believers in Jerusalem. This was the event that launched the New Testament church into action. And the book of Acts tells the story of how God's spirit enabled the church to spread right the way throughout the known world. Acts 3 tells us of an occasion when Peter and John went to the temple At the time of prayer, as they always did. And on their way into the temple, Peter healed a man who had been lame since birth. Now, as you can imagine, this healing caused quite a commotion and Peter all of a sudden found that he had an audience. So he used the opportunity to proclaim the good news. And it was these two things, this healing and Peter's teaching that caused the opposition from the Sadducees that we're reading about today. In Luke's first volume, the Gospel of Luke, uh, most of the opposition to Jesus seems to come from the Pharisees. But here in Luke's uh, second volume, the Book of Acts, it is the Sadducees who oppose uh, Peter and John and the apostles. So what do we know about the Sadducees? Well, at the time of Jesus, there were three main Jewish political slash uh, religious uh, movements, Uh, There were the Essenes, and we're not really concerned with them today. There were the Pharisees, who were prominent in Luke's gospel, and there were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the ruling class. They were wealthy aristocrats who controlled everything that went on in the temple. And Luke tells us that they were greatly disturbed by the apostles' teaching, and most of all, the fact that uh, Peter was preaching about the resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ. And to be fair, Peter didn't mince his words. Uh, at one point when he was speaking to the crowd, he said, you caught kill the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. And this disturbed the Sadducees for two reasons. Firstly, political. In a sense, the Sadducees had aligned themselves with the Romans. They were working with them to try and hold on to their position and power. The Sadducees didn't want the apostles rocking the boat or disturbing this uneasy peace that they had with the Romans. And from the Sadducees' point of view, the apostles' teaching was uh, subversive and it was going to create real problems. So the Sadducees were uh, disturbed for political reasons. They were also disturbed for theological reasons. The Sadducees were the liberals of their day. They didn't believe in angels uh, miracles, uh, the spirit world, and they certainly didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And here the apostles were preaching the resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ, who had himself been miraculously raised. There was plenty of evidence for Jesus's resurrection, not least the apostles' witness and their testimony. But the Sadducees denied the evidence because it didn't fit with their preconceived ideas. They were set in their ways, and many people today are set in their ways about all kinds of things. Let me give you a trivial example. I once worked in a gym, and it wasn't uncommon to see people performing exercises incorrectly. Now, if that person was new to exercise, they'd invariably accept guidance. They'd want to learn how to do it properly. However, if it was someone who had been doing that exercise wrong their whole life, well, then they didn't want to be told. Uh, even if what they were doing could cause injury, even if it wasn't beneficial, they wouldn't want to change it. And if it meant reducing the weight in order to perform the exercise correctly, uh, no way. They just didn't want to do it. And I saw this time and time again. Now, if someone can become set in their ways about an exercise at the gym, how much more so about their entire worldview? And this is why many people don't want to uh, hear the evidence for the truth of Christianity, let alone engage with it. The gospel is disturbing for people because it invariably means a, a new way of seeing the world. And we live in a culture that is increasingly turning away from God. Many people, if they think about this at all, they think, well, I'm a good person. So if there is a God, I'll be OK. Peter said this to the crowd. He said, Repent. And turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed to you, even Jesus. That doesn't go down well in today's culture. Repent. You mean admit that I'm in the wrong and change the way I live my life? No way. Likewise, pluralism is a big thing in today's culture, this idea that all paths lead to God. Uh, When Peter was brought in front of the uh, Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, he said this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven to mankind given to mankind by which we must be saved. That doesn't go down well in today's culture either. What you mean if I don't accept Jesus, I can't be close to God? Nah, I don't like that. We cannot experience the truth of the gospel without humility. We must be willing to change our mind and willing to change our lives. The gospel is confronting, challenging and disturbing. It was 2000 years ago when the apostles first preached it. And it is today. Responding positively to the good news of Jesus means having our life turned upside down in the best possible way but people can't always see that Uh, you can be sure that if you proclaim the gospel you will face opposition because people don't want to hear it but the church always grows in spite of opposition the religious leaders tried to do away with Jesus by killing him and burying him and it didn't work so it's a foregone conclusion that they won't be able to snuff out the church they were literally trying to stop the unstoppable Later on in the book of Acts, when the persecution begins to ramp up, Peter and some of the other apostles again find themselves before the Sanhedrin. And there's a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel. Church tradition has it that he later gave his life to Christ. Uh, But here's what he said, and it was spot on. He said, therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So the religious leaders were trying to stop the unstoppable. Communist regimes have attempted this in recent history. And in many of those places, Christianity has taken root in a very powerful way. China as a prominent example. And we see the same thing happening here in uh, the Jerusalem church. Look at verses three and four. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. You'll remember that uh, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people came to Christ and now the number has grown to 5,000. So that's uh, 2,000 people who have converted because of this particular situation. The religious authority thought, right, we need to stop this movement. Let's arrest the ringleaders. And that's what they did. But at the same time, 2,000 people have given their lives to Christ. It's like the Sadducees are stood before a huge dam that's bursting armed only with little plastic buckets and spades of the sort that children might use at the seaside. It's a pathetic image of human beings trying to halt the mission of God. So Peter and John were facing the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, the high priest, and Annas, his father-in-law who called the shots. It's the same group of men that Jesus faced, the same group of men who called in false witnesses and condemned Jesus to death. The apostles could hardly expect a fair trial and they were probably wondering if they too would be handed over to the Romans for crucifixion as Jesus had been. And you'll remember that when Jesus was facing Annas and Caiaphas, Peter was outside warming himself by the fire. And it was here that he lost his nerve and denied Jesus for the first of three times before the cock crowed. But that's not going to happen now because Peter has a new boldness. He's emboldened by the resurrection of Jesus. There is no doubt in his mind that Jesus was and is God, uh, that everything he said was true. But he's also filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and Peter begins by drawing attention to the fact that this trial is a sham. It's ridiculous. There's been an act of kindness. There's been a miracle. And the evidence of that miracle is right there. The man who's been uh, healed is standing in that very courtroom. Uh, This man had some kind of congenital disease. He'd been lame since birth and he was now healed at the age of 40 plus. He begged at the temple gate every day. The Sadducees would have seen him. Every member of the Sanhedrin would have seen him on a daily basis. And here he was standing before them healed. It's compelling evidence. It was an undeniable miracle and an embarrassment to the Sadducees who didn't even believe in miracles. And in that context, Peter proclaims the gospel and he doesn't pull his punches. He reminds them that they crucified Jesus and that God has raised him from the dead. And he tells them that they've rejected Jesus. But actually, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. In other words, he's saying, you've got it badly wrong. And the religious leaders were a bit taken aback. They weren't expecting this. Uh, Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. When it says that they were unschooled, it doesn't mean that they were illiterate, but they had no formal religious instruction. I love the fact that God used these two ordinary fishermen to proclaim the gospel to the highest Jewish religious authority there was. It's so like God to do that. And it's hugely encouraging for us. You see, the spirit takes ordinary people and does extraordinary things and that's one of the reasons why it's so exciting to be a Christian. The Holy Spirit empowers, emboldens and equips us to proclaim the good news of Jesus. But I think it's fair to say that many of us don't feel very confident about sharing our faith. Back in February we completed the National Church Life Survey and it's highlighted some really positive things about our church but it's also highlighted a weakness in the area of faith sharing and I think this has to to do more with confidence than willingness a lot of the time we say oh I could never do that I'd I'd like to but I just couldn't do it but if that's our mindset of course we'll never do it of course we'll never share our faith at some point we've got to say I'm going to do it I'm going to share my faith and the Holy Spirit will embolden us, but very often we don't receive the gifts of the Spirit until we show a willingness to use them. In other words, we may only receive the gift of boldness when we put ourselves in a situation where we need it. I wonder, when was the last time that you prayed for boldness? When was the last time that you asked God to help you to share your faith with other people? Boldness. As a church, we need Boldness. You've seen how bold Peter wasn't when Jesus was on trial and a servant girl asked him if he was with Jesus. He crumbled. He denied Jesus. But that same Peter, after the resurrection, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he was able to address not a servant girl but the high priest with such clarity and conviction and confidence. And the same Holy Spirit that enabled Peter to do that is available to us Today. Have you ever noticed how when you speak with people about your holiday plans or sport or how the kids are getting on at school, people will engage, but it's often at quite a superficial level. I mean, those are quite easy, quite safe conversations to have. But when we talk about Jesus, the atmosphere changes because there is power in the name of Jesus. For most people, Jesus, the person is either a threat or he's irresistible. As Peter said, there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus has the power to heal broken lives. Uh, The name of Jesus has the power to heal a broken world. We must find ways to talk about Jesus with people outside of the church. And sometimes people will try to obstruct us from doing this. In in the case of Peter and John, the Sanhedrin commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And here's how they responded. They said, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And this raises An interesting question, namely, are Christians ever permitted to break the law? Well, evidently, when there's a direct conflict between the law of the land and God's explicit commands as set out in scripture, Christians can legitimately break the law. Now, you might be surprised to hear me say that, but consider this. Uh, During the Second World War, the Nazis who went to take Jews away to concentration camps where they were to be exterminated. They were obeying orders. They were working within the law. Conversely, those people who hid Jews and helped them to escape, they were breaking the law, but I don't think we'd say that they were wrong to do so. This is obviously extremely pertinent for people living under oppressive regimes, much less so I think for Christians living here in Australia. Uh, We need to be very careful with this. Christians can't use this passage as an excuse to rebel against the government willy-nilly. Our aim should always be to obey God and the government. Only when it becomes impossible to do both, when there's a stark choice to be made, that's the only time that we can legitimately disobey the government. And that's why it's so important to keep going back to scripture. Uh, And we ask ourselves the question, is this something that I'm expressly commanded to do in scripture? Or is it something that I feel I ought to do? Uh, I think there's an important distinction there. Proclaiming the gospel is something that we are commanded to do in scripture. And actually, it's only oppressive regimes that attempt to prevent people from doing that altogether. A friend of mine, a pastor from another church, held an online discussion recently. And the question was this Is it okay for Christians to riot? And the answer is a straight no. If as Christians we have something to protest, we must do so wherever possible within the boundaries of the law. Uh, that means that as Christians, we should not be involved in riots or acts of vandalism or violence. Those things are completely incompatible with our faith. And in the current climate where mass gatherings are banned for the safety of the, the whole population, I believe that Christians should continue to follow the advice of the government. But there are alternatives. Uh, you know, if everyone involved in the protests have written to um to the, the government, both state government and federal government, uh, that would have an impact. Bag after bag of mail arriving at every politician's office, all on the same subject. That could be really powerful. So there are alternatives, but Christians cannot disobey the government until such time as it becomes impossible to obey both government and God. And we need to exercise discretion too. If you go into a school or a prison or a hospital with a Christian agenda, then it is wise to respect the rules of that establishment. Otherwise, you risk having that gospel opportunity taken away altogether. We must proclaim the gospel. And sometimes people will try to prevent us from doing that. Sometimes the authorities will try to prevent us from doing that even in this liberal democratic nation that we call Australia. But we need to exercise wisdom and discretion so that we're creating gospel opportunities and not limiting them. So in conclusion, we must be willing to stand up for the gospel and that will invariably mean facing opposition at some point. Christianity is not about doing what is easy or comfortable or popular. It's about doing what is right. In a couple of weeks, we'll be looking at the subject of persecution. We don't face persecution here in Australia. Uh, That's not to say we never will, but right now we don't. And we should be very thankful for that. And we should use this opportunity that we have. And so the key thing for us today is that we resolve to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ with boldness, wisdom, nuance and love. And in the knowledge that the Holy Spirit will equip us for this task.